This is Publishers Weekly Radio, the authority on all things books and publishing, with everything you need to know from your favorite books and the world in which they live to bestseller lists and publishing news. Here's the inside story on your favorite story. Publishers Weekly Radio, with your hosts, Rose Fox and Mark Rotella. Hello and welcome to Publishers Weekly Radio, on the web at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio and streaming free on iHeartRadio, iTunes, and audiobookradio.net. I'm Mark Rotella, Senior Editor at Publishers Weekly. And I'm Rose Fox. I'm a Senior Reviews Editor at Publishers Weekly, and we're bringing you the very best of book talk directly from PW's offices in New York City, the heart of the book publishing world. On today's show, author David Peterson discusses the art of language invention. Then PW senior writer Andrew Albanese gets ready for the Frankfurt Book Fair. But first, here's a sneak peek at next week's Publishers Weekly bestseller list, powered by Nielsen Bookscan. So you have the big book of the week, the big, yeah. big, 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 big yeah. book of the week. What's our number one with that. a bullet? Let's just say, if you were to guess Bill O'Reilly, you wouldn't be wrong. Yep. And this is Killing Reagan, the violent assault that changed a presidency. And this week, 111,000 people bought the book. Uh, well, people bought 111,000 copies of the book. I'm yeah, sure he's yeah. got fans who buy 10 and right. give them out yeah, to yeah, everyone yeah, yeah, right. yeah, in sure. their family. <laughs> sure. <laughs> wow. Yeah. So that's, that's, the, uh, that's the big one. So, But next, at number three, uh, Big Magic, Creative Living Beyond Fear by Elizabeth Gilbert. We'll know her for uh, her, her book, Eat, Pray, Love, mm-hmm. and then more recently her novel, The Signature of All Things. And in our review, we say that she offers an empathetic and inspiring guide to mustering the courage to live a creative life. Um, you say nearly anyone who picks up the self-help manual should finish it feeling inspired, even if only to dream of a life without limits. And this book was inspired or came out of one of her uh, really well-received uh, TED Talks. So well, mm. her TED Talk, but um, one of the really well-received TED Talks. So that was at number three. That sold uh, 23,000 copies. Uh, and any uh, other week, yeah. that would be big news. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Just had exactly. the bad fortune to come out the same week as Bill O'Reilly. Yeah. And uh, next up, we have Jenny Lawson follows up Let's Pretend This Didn't Happen, her best-selling book, with this one, Furiously Happy, a funny book about horrible things. Um, she started off as a blogger, and then she wrote the book, Let's Pretend This Didn't Happen. And here, she writes that this quote-unquote funny book about mental illness is not so much a sequel to her last book, but rather a collection of bizarre essays and conversations and confused thoughts stuck together by spilled box wine and frustrated tears of baffled editors. That's all her uh, introduction <laughs> to her own book. But anyway, uh, we say that though mostly comedic, the text also addresses such serious issues as self-injury and why mental illness is misunderstood. Lawson insightfully explores the ways in which dark moments serve to make the lighter times all the brighter. And that's it, number six. I love her blog. I've been a fan of her. She writes as the bloggist, and I've been a fan of hers for years and years. Just funny, but but it's always got that sort of dark core to it that she knows what the grim side of life looks like. And that's why being funny is so important. Right. Yeah. And, and I think that's as you know, why she has so many followers and, and readers of this mm-hmm. book. Next up at number seven, uh, it's always great to see a cookbook this high up mm-hmm. uh, the food lab, better home cooking through science by J. Kenzie Lopez alt. He's the managing culinary director of uh, Series Eats website and the editor and author of the James Beard Award-nominated column that informs this massive investigation into the best methods for preparing a litany of foods. This is from our review. 
this book is huge. This book is a meaning. It's a very thick book. <laughs> it's a big body of work, and that it's uh, um, coming out at number seven is uh, is pretty fascinating because I've I've had people come to me who I would have never thought who probably don't buy cookbooks to say mm-hmm. they want this cookbook. Uh, given the breadth of the book uh, and depth, this is a remarkable piece of work that stands up to its culinary comrades and is a terrific starting point for home cooks interested in perfecting their techniques, so says our review. And this means that this book was just, at, you can enter it at many different levels as a beginner, as experienced, as professional. So uh, it really takes you behind the science of it. So that's at number seven. It's pretty cool. And we gave that a starred review. Yes, we did. We gave that a starred review. And then we have Conscious Uncoupling, Five Steps to Living Happily Even After, Catherine Woodard Thomas. This is marriage and family therapist Thomas. Uh, sets out to empower recently separated couples with a program designed to bring dignity, goodness, and honor to the end of a relationship. Um, one of these self-help books that we see coming up now and again. Um, we say that Thomas proves herself compassionate and emotionally in tune with the pain of love lost. And her guidance will likely usher many of those afflicted to a brighter or at least less bitter future. Another self-help book at number 13, Lovable, Livable Home, How to Add Beauty, Get Organized, and Make Your House Work for You by uh, husband and wife Sherry Petersick and John Petersick. Uh, they're also the uh, authors of Young House Love. And finally, at number 19, 1944, FDR in the Year That Changed History by Jay Winnick. Uh, we say that for Winnick, 1944 becomes not only the year of FDR's greatest triumph, when it became clear that the Allies would prevail, but also the year he failed Europe's Jews. Hmm. So, and, um, and that's what we have on the uh, nonfiction list. Well, the big book in fiction this week isn't actually on the hardcover fiction list. It's at the top of our juvenile fiction list. Mm. Uh, it's The Library of Souls by Ransom Riggs, the third book in the series of Miss Peregrine's Peculiar Children. And, of course, began with Miss Peregrine's Home for Peculiar Children. It's the very first uh, first book. And uh, yeah, this this one is it has an interesting combination of modern day and Victorian London. Uh, there's some time travel involved and uh, other mystical elements series is selling like gangbusters Mm -hmm. and uh this this particular one uh clocked in uh, i think some 39,000 copies sold in its first week out very credible showing we have a new number one on the adult fiction list uh adult hardcover fiction list uh, come rain or come shine by jan caron and uh this is the latest book in the mitford series these are super feel good lovely americana down home relaxed laid back kind of novels uh and uh, you follow the these people in their lives uh, it's like watching a soap opera uh, or a kind of modern day little house on the prairie something like what? that you really get to know who everyone is and uh there is a, a boy who uh, appeared in one of the early novels, kind of barefoot, scallywag. Mm -hmm. And now he's all grown up and he's getting married. And so this is basically the big wedding book for him and uh, his partner and uh, everybody who's been following the series has been waiting and waiting and waiting for him to find his happy ending and Mm -hmm. have this wedding. It's like the big anticipated family wedding for a great big family of readers. So uh, that has sold uh, about 32,000 copies. It's first week out. Everybody's eager to go back to Mitford and be there for this wedding. So that's at number one. Great. 
And uh, down at number 33, Mycroft Holmes, uh, if that sounds familiar. He's the brother of Sherlock, who uh, has more of the spotlight, but they always said Mycroft was even smarter. We gave this a starred review, and it's uh, somewhat improbably by Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, not a name often associated with fiction writing, but turns out the guy can do pretty much anything. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) And and he's been uh, been penning quite a few articles, uh, one, I think, op-ed in the Times. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so he's been... He's been working that magic. Yes, he has. Um, and uh, obviously, he's a basketball legend. This is his first novel. Um, and we just, we raved about it. He co-wrote it with uh, Anna Waterhouse. And uh, this one fills in the backstory of Sherlock Holmes's older brother, Mycroft, uh, who uh, is starting with him in 1870 when he has a reputation as a daredevil and is serving as a secretary at the war office. Uh, We say that Sherlockians who relish the screen adventures of Benedict Cumberbatch and Robert Downey Jr. will be particularly entertained. Sherlock Holmes just never dies. Uh, (laughs) And I'm not just talking Reichenbach Falls here. He's uh, eternally popular. And um, it looks like that you know, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar might have the start of a successful series here if he wants one. Mm-hmm. Um, it could be uh, an entirely yet another new career for him. So uh, that's on the list at number 33. And finally, I just wanted to note, uh, we have a couple of collections of comic books. I uh, don't usually see them so high up on the uh, the hardcover fiction list, but number 17 is Batman Volume 7 Endgame, which is a collection of Joker stories uh, put together by Scott Snyder, illustrated by Greg Capullo and uh, Danny Mickey. And then um, a little bit further down at number 39 uh, is Volume 11 of Mobile Suit Gundam The Origin, mm-hmm. uh, which is for uh, all those... Uh, anime fans out there and uh, you know, if you feel like people battling one another in giant mecha suits then uh, Gun- Gundam has always <laughs> been there for you and uh, I, I, I knew people who loved Gundam back in high school and wow. yeah, it's been around a long time so uh, these these collections are uh, definitely for those nostalgic fans as well as newer ones. Sounds like a good list. Let's see what happens uh, next week. Yeah, there's not a lot happening on the fiction list this week. Not a lot of debuts, but uh, it'll be interesting to see whether some more maybe pop up once we're into early October. Yeah, exactly. Meanwhile, nonfiction has been active for a couple weeks. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, David Peterson tells us where baby languages come from. We'll be right back. I'm Naomi Jackson, author of The Star Side of Bird Hill, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and you are listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Today we've got David Peterson on the line. His new book is The Art of Language Invention. David, I'm so glad you could join us. Thanks for having me. I'm glad to be here. So uh, you're the creator, uh, most famously, of the Dothraki language for HBO's Game of Thrones. Tell us a little bit about how you went about creating this language from scratch. Well, Dothraki, of course, wasn't created entirely from scratch. Uh, with Dothraki, I had to work with some of uh, some existing material that George R. R. Martin had created for the first three of, of the books in his uh, Song of Ice and Fire series. Um, there were a lot of names, but then there were also some uh, single words and a few phrases. So my first task with those Rocky was to actually catalog everything that George R. R. Martin had created and to figure out how I believed it should be pronounced based on his spellings, 
um, and figure out what grammar there was and to see if it was consistent. Um, I think I was very fortunate in that uh, George R. R. Martin's creation was pretty consistent, and there was a kind of consistent uh, head initial phrasing, which means that there were prepositions and that verbs came before their objects. So um, after I'd cataloged everything and analyzed it, uh, it was just on me to create the rest of the language that would support the material that was in the book so that it wouldn't invalidate anything that was in there. Gotcha. So um, how did you land this gig? It sounds fascinating. Uh, well, in fact, I competed uh, to get this job um, with a lot of other language creators. There were about 40 who expressed interest at the beginning um, in, a, in a contest that was advertised and, and run by the Language Creation Society. Um, ultimately, I think there were about uh, 30 or so that ended up submitting proposals in what ended up being a two-round uh, competition, the first round judged by other language creators and the second by the producers. Um, I basically worked my tail off, and uh, I made it into the finals after the first round. Uh, with four other great language creators. And then in the final round, ultimately, uh, Dave and Dan chose my proposal, and so that's how I got the job. So how long did it take you to finish this application, uh, to create this language, and what were your governing instincts in, in doing it? Well, I had a, uh, we had about a month and a half. So we had a, a few weeks for the first round, and then after the first round was over with, we had a couple more weeks to um, improve uh, our, you know, our, our initial round packet for the final round and to do some extra translation. By the end of it, I produced over 300 pages of material, um, the bulk of which was a large reference grammar and dictionary of the entire language. Um, and, uh, and really, it was just... It was it was just a, a, a maddening time, where um, you know we were all working on our proposals, but you never had any idea how much work everybody else was putting in. So I just kept working and working and working, sometimes for 18 hours a day, just improving it and enlarging it, and basically making it uh, as big and impressive as I could. Uh, so big so that. They, uh, they would pick me because they would feel bad for how much work I'd done, <laughs> basically. So, so what do you use as the basis for, for, say, for this language in particular, languages in general? Do you use a Latinate base, uh, Greek, Japanese, uh, Cyrillic? How, how, do you, how, do you, how do you start? Where's the base? Um, we, don't work with, uh, we don't work with bases that are other languages, um, that are at least especially not for what would be what we call an a priori language. An a priori language is one that isn't based on other languages and doesn't draw vocabulary from other sources. Um, you know, so for that reason, it, it wouldn't really be appropriate to borrow anything from a different language, especially you know, an Earth language when you're creating a language for a world that isn't Earth. Um, so in this case, like for Dothraki, it was honestly inspired mostly by the, the very few words and phrases that were in the books, and then basically what I imagined the rest of it would be like. Um, as, a, as a language creator, what we can do is once you've, once you've really studied language, especially studied a great number of languages, um, there are really only a, a finite number of ways that human languages vary. And so then when you go to create your own language, um, you don't need to draw from any other language. You, you know all the ways that languages can vary, so you just decide on what your variation is going to be. Um, the end result will, by happenstance, end up uh, looking like um, 
other natural languages on the planet, but it won't be intentionally so. So, for example, if uh, just ordering your subject, object, and verb, if you put the subject first and the object second and the verb last, that's going to look very much like Latin, Turkish, and Japanese. But it doesn't mean necessarily that you were inspired by those languages. You just wanted to do it that way, and it just so happens that it looks like other languages that already exist. So human languages obviously are, are living and growing all the time. Does that happen with these creative languages, created languages too, that um, fans take them on and embellish them once you've provided this uh, base set of vocabulary and grammar that's kind of canonical? Uh, there's actually two ways that this works. So for one, when I'm creating a, a naturalistic language, that is a language that's supposed to be spoken by human beings, uh, I build in the history. That is, I, I, I actually emulate uh, the way that languages evolve and how they grow so that you can look at it and see different eras within, like, the Dothraki language. You can see uh, older words, newer words, um, innovations, and things like that, and kind of track their changes over um, a simulated time period. Uh, so that's one aspect of it. The other aspect, though, is, uh, is yes, the, the language, despite existing in kind of a fictional realm is, of course, a real thing. I mean, it actually exists to the extent that a language can exist. And so um, not only will fans use them, but I will use them as well. And uh, with my usage, uh, it kind of, you know, new, new idioms will form, um, new little quirks will form, um, things that will just happen in translation that, uh, that you might not have thought of beforehand. Uh, these things will happen just naturally. And so... Um, so then there's the extra textual history and its evolution, which is something you can also track and, and see. And it's especially interesting to see uh, second, second language learners kind of get the language and try to do stuff with it, because they'll do things that, um, that honestly I never thought of before. But when I see them do it, I say, well, actually, I guess that kind of makes sense. I guess it works. So could you give us uh, an example? Could, we, could you give us a sentence in Dothraki uh, and that we could maybe break down in sentence diagram? Uh, sure. What's a, what's, a, what's, a, what's a good sentence? What can we say? I don't know. You um, could start with, it is known. Yeah, well, that's, that's, that's too simple. Uh, it's too simple on the one hand and too difficult on the other. Yes. Let's do something uh, a little grammatically simpler. Uh, how about... Um, that is, I sharpened my Iraq. And the way that works is uh, you start out with the subject, which is in the nominative or subjective case. So it's like using I versus me. Uh, the next word is the verb. Uh, now, the root is has, which is just sharp, uh, an adjectival root. In order to form a causative, that is to make something sharp, you add a prefix on the front that ends up, uh, it's an ah prefix that doubles the next consonant. And so then when you put it in the past tense, the past tense has no, uh, no suffix on it. So it becomes ahas, like that. And that's the past tense, which means sharpened. Next comes the word arach, which looks the same in both its um, subjective and objective form, and it comes after the verb. And then following that is uh, the pronoun I, but in the genitive or possessive case. So anni, and that means my arach. Wow. 
So um, how do you go about looking at these words, like, for example, Arach, which is A-R-A-K-H, and decide that it's Arach and not Arach? Or, uh, you know, how, how do you figure out how, how to uh, pronounce the vowels, the consonants, just based on these little snippets of what George Martin had created? Yeah, so uh, with, with his spellings, there were some that were unique. So, like, <laughs> he has lots of things that were spelled J-H, and I had to figure out what that was supposed to stand for. Um, but there were two things that guided me. One is I kind of imagine that uh, most of the readers of these will be English speakers, and so I'll try to imagine what it is they're expecting. Mm. And in, in particular, um, knowing that Dothraki is in the context supposed to be a foreign language, what they would expect a, this foreign language to sound like. So it wouldn't be all English sounds. Um, and so what happened was anytime there was a consonant followed by H, I did one of three things. First, if it was a standard English sound, I stuck with it. So SH is SH, TH is TH, you know, no surprises there. And if it was uh, something that we canonically use for a very specific consonant, I went with that. So for KH, um, that's often how we spell the K sound, which is a velar, voiceless velar fricative found in... Um, in Russian, but also in, in Spanish and French. So, like, uh, for example, uh, the Spanish name uh, Juan, when pronounced appropriately or correctly, is Juan, like that, with a nice velar fricative at the beginning. Um, so uh, when it was an obvious consonant like that, I gave it that sound. Otherwise, um, I actually just left them uh, as two consonants to be pronounced in a row. So, for example, there is... Uh, there is a, a phrase that they use to refer to Viserys, Daenerys' brother, um, Kal uh, Sorfoot, which is Khal uh, And that has uh, the second two words there, Khay, is R H A E, and I just left the R and the H um, as they were, so you pronounce both in order. And I did the same thing with M H, Mhar. So it's like you pronounce the M and the H as a consonant cluster. So that's what I did with that. And uh, you've written Living Language Dothraki. What inspired you to write this book? Oh, there's, there's no inspiration there. I mean, I'm a language creator. I, I was, I, I've been creating languages for 15 years. It's, it's my biggest dream to be able to do like a teacher self-guide for all of my languages. That's, that's what all language creators would love to do. So it's like, for, for Living Language Dothraki, listen to it wasn't a case of inspiration. It was it was a case of, of HBO and Living Language letting me do this, mm-hmm. um, you know, giving me license to essentially live out a conlanger's dream, which is to have a published book on one of your languages. It's just, I mean, it, it, it still boggles my mind that I was able to do that. So, so tell us a little bit about this book now that we've heard all about uh, language creation, especially the uh, Dothraki. So The Art of Language Invention is my new book, which is uh, basically it, it does uh, one of a number of things. First, it'll give you <laughs> kind of a crash course in, in linguistics, I've realized, but uh, hopefully it's accessible, I think, for um, uh, non-linguists. It'll kind of, you know, set you on the ground and get you running. But also it will give you um, some, uh, some tips about what to do when you're starting creating a language and also give you a window into what it's like to be a language creator, what it is that we do when we do what we do, you know. Um, uh, I, like, for example, you can see 
some of the choices I've made with some of the languages I've created for different shows that I've worked on in the case studies in each book. There's a case study on how I created the sound of Dothraki, uh, how I created the uh, nominal system of Erasian from Defiance, how I created the verb system for High Valyrian from Game of Thrones, and how I created the writing system for Castathon from, uh, from Defiance. And I kind of go through step by step and show you exactly what I did and why. And so that would hopefully give people kind of more of an understanding that, you know, it's not just random words, you know, made up and, and thrown on screen. There's a lot of thought that goes into it and a very systematic process that comes into producing, you know, what you end up seeing and hearing on screen. We're going to take a quick break, but don't go away. Book lovers everywhere love Publishers Weekly Radio, now on iHeartRadio.com. PW Radio brings you the best of books and book publishing news. PW editors Rose Fox and Mark Rotella offer lively interviews with your favorite authors and conversations with new authors you'll want to get to know. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella. Join the community of book lovers at PW Radio. Every Friday and now on demand at iHeartRadio.com. Welcome back. We're talking with David Peterson, author of The Art of Language Invention. I, I'm the one who's like leaning on all these specifics of your language because I'm so fascinated by constructed languages. Um, so I'm delighted to actually talk to you about your book. Uh, when I was studying linguistics, we had this very, uh, I suppose, earth-based approach to it um, where you know, we would look at languages from different parts of the world. How does your crash course in linguistics differ from that? Because it seems to me it might uh, take a very different shape if you're starting from this idea of, of taking all human languages and looking at their commonalities rather than their differences? Yeah, well, especially when it comes to language creation, um, and if like, you know, that's the practice you're doing, you, you take a, a little bit of a different angle on it um, that, that you would never do in linguistics. So yeah, in, in linguistics, you, you study all the languages and see you know, what it is they do and try to figure out how they do it. Um, when looking at it as a language creator, on the other hand, you try to figure out how to make that, how to make it work, how to make it look like that. So, for example, in, uh, I have a section uh, in the Art of Language Invention on the evolution of language, where uh, I do go over some of what we know about how sounds evolve, how meanings evolve, and how grammar itself evolves. But uh, specifically in that section, I give some pointers for like, all right, if you're looking to create a future tense, and evolve it naturally, here are some pathways to do so. Um, and like, here's the easiest way to do a future tense. Like a go future is the easiest thing to do. If, if anybody, if you don't know what this is, we have it in English. So rather than saying, I will eat, you say, I'm going to eat, or use the verb go to create a future tense. Lots of different languages do that. Spanish does that. Uh, French does it. Um, and so that's one of a number of pathways for a future tense. Um, but it's, a very different way of looking at looking at it than from the way that a linguist looks at it. A linguist just looks at it and asks, "Wow, you know, how did this happen, um, and how do we understand it?" Uh, whereas a, a language creator, it's like, "All right, how are we going to do this? How are we going to do this and make it look good?" Yeah. So, um, what about the intersection of language and culture? So, uh, for example, if if your culture isn't really into thinking about the future, then, uh, you know, maybe you might not need a future tense or maybe the future tense might look different. Do you have advice in your book for um, creators to work within a culture to figure out a language that makes sense for that culture's priorities and concepts? 
Well, well here's, here's the thing with that. Um, there, there, have been, there have been a number of, of, of articles that have come out recently about, like, uh, this language does or doesn't have this feature, which means X, Y, or Z. Um, many of these have been less than scientific, hmm. shall we say. Um, I, I think as, from the standpoint of linguistics, we, we have the point of view that all languages are basically mutually uh, translatable, which means that you are not going to necessarily be able to say the same thing in, in one language as, as uh, concisely as you can in another, but that all languages can all say the same stuff. Uh, and like, you know, for example, um, some languages have two different future tenses, one for an immediate future tense and one for a, a distant future tense, and it'll be marked morphologically uh, straight on the verb. Um, and we don't do that in English, but that doesn't mean we can't talk about the distant future or the immediate future. We just have to use more words to do it. Um, and, you know, and that's fine. They're basically kind of notational variants. Um, now, having said that, though, culture, of course, does play a big role into the type of vocabulary that you have, um, mm. especially, uh, you know, depending on what, you know, what time period you're thinking of and what the region is like. So um, if you talk about modern English um, and you look at our words for food or our words for animals, we've got words for all of them. And it's because we live in a great big world now. We have the Internet. We can communicate with all corners of the globe. We can see all corners of the globe. So it makes sense that an English speaker uh, would be talking about sushi because it's now right. part of the lives of English speakers. Or schadenfreude. Uh, I was going to say, but if you go back like 2,000 years, probably not. Right. Probably is no word for sushi in English at that stage. You know? Hmm. So um, do your languages ever intersect? I, I mean, I remember when I was studying my second, second language, uh, I, I grew up speaking a lot of French and then I studied Russian and I kept sticking French words in there whenever I was trying to speak Russian. Did you ever, do you ever get mixed up with your languages? You start out um, speaking Dothraki and then there's a Klingon word that sneaks in there. Well, hey, um, honestly, if uh, if you were doing uh, inserting French words into Russian, well, you're you're in good company. Well, uh, yes, there is a lot of uh, historical basis for that. <laughs> but um, yeah, as far as uh, as far as my languages go, like just when you're talking about like using a language, um, I never mix them up, and that's that's the case with my created languages or the languages that I've studied. I don't know why. I, it seems like it's something that would happen, but no, I've never mixed them up like accidentally. You know, said a word of Arabic in, in, in my Russian class, it doesn't happen. Um, but I, I will tell you something that is very familiar to me as a language creator when I'm translating. Mm. Um, I w when I'm doing, you know, so let's say I'm, I'm working on defiance and I'm creating, uh, and I'm doing a translation into a Castathan sentence, and I need a particular word. Um, I will I will see it and I'm like, oh, I don't remember what that word is. I'll go to my, my Castathan dictionary, I'll look up the word, and I'll come up empty. And I'm like, what is the deal with this? I remember creating this word specifically. Why isn't here? And the thing is, what I'm remembering is creating that word for a different language. Uh. Um, and that happens all the time, and it's really frustrating. I always get annoyed at myself. I'm like, I created this word in three other languages, but not this one? Moron. <laughs> So tell us about you'd mentioned the Language Creation Society. Yeah. Uh, oh, tell tell you about the Language yeah. Creation Society. Yeah. Okay. So, um, you know, I I I 
found the conlanging community uh, shortly after I started creating languages. This was around 2001, I think I found it. And I was just amazed that there were so many people all over the world that were creating languages, that had been creating languages, that had created amazing languages. Um, and essentially, this was our only real connection was this uh, online listserv. So um, around uh, 2007, we were... Um, we were putting on the second language creation conference. I had, uh, I had presented at both the first and the second. Um, and a fellow, a former uh, a for, a Berkeley alum just like me named Cy, came up with the idea of creating a nonprofit organization in order to more easily secure funding for language creation conferences, because he, he said that it would be easier to get funding if you were a nonprofit. And so uh, me and, and, uh, and the other 10 original board members all got together and at the Second Language Creation Conference formed the Language Creation Society. Uh, we didn't really uh, have many ideas for what it would be, but essentially it kind of became just a, a, little, a little signpost for language creation around the world so that we could say, if you want to know what it is, Come here, and we will show you the entire world of language creation. And, and you know, if you're interested in joining a community, we'll show you where they are. Um, and uh, since then, uh, we've kind of been there as a way to be a service to other language creators and to tell people what it's all about. So when you say a service to other language creators, what kind of uh, connections and assistance do you offer? Is it mostly about community, connecting with other people who are doing what you're doing? Oh yeah. Well, one thing that uh, we do is like uh, we uh, for for members of the Language Creation Society, we give them free web space. Um, and I think this is actually more crucial uh, back in the early 2000s when really the only way to present your language was with your own website. Mm. But, but people mostly don't do that anymore. I've discovered people don't create their own websites and like you know hand code the HTML and everything like I used to do. Um, they, uh, you know, mostly do do Tumblr and Facebook, so we're kind of having to evolve, and uh, basically just, you know, trying to find people who create languages and say, you know, hey, you're not in a vacuum. There are other people who do it, and if you want to talk to them, we'll we will we will help you out with that. If there's anything you think uh, that is like, oh, I wish as a language creator I had access to this tool, or I wish we could do this, we'll try to do that. So you know. We're just trying to be there and help out when we can. And give us an idea of some of the topics that might be presented on at a, one of these conlanging conferences. Oh, yeah. So uh, we've had uh, six of them, uh, six language creation conferences. The most recent one uh, was, in fact, this year, um, this past April, in Horsham, uh, Horsham, England. And um, the type, I mean, all most of the talks are all online. You can watch them on YouTube. But things that we've discussed, for example, uh, some popular talks have been uh, John Quixada's talk about how you can use um, uh, Lakovian concepts of, of conceptual metaphor, how they can inform uh, your created language. Um, I've, we've we've had people do uh, many presentations just on their language. Um, and so, like, I was trying to think of a, a good one. Uh, Matt Pearson actually did a study about how he took his old language um, and then basically totally rejuvenated the case system by starting over at ground zero and reconceptualizing it based on use, which I thought was really fascinating and really helpful uh, to me as, as I was starting to go into creating case languages. Um, and then um, we've also had another outstanding talk we had this year, just amazing. There was a gentleman, Jim Hopkins, who delivered his entire 45-minute talk 
in his created language, Itlani. Um, I have never seen anything like that before in my life. Wow. And even more, he had his best friend, uh, 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 Tony, um, oh gosh, Tony, I'm blanking on your last name, I'm sorry, but the creator of Alursa, he translated it into English for us. Um, in, in real time? Uh, it, so uh, uh, Jim Hopkins did it in Itlani, his, the language he created, and his friend um, uh, Tony um, cr- uh, actually can speak Itlani fluently, so he translated his talk simultaneously into English for the audience so that we could understand it. Um, and it was, it was amazing. It was inspiring. What an experience. Wow. So what's next on the horizon for you? Uh, well, uh, I'm, working on, um, I'm working on a couple new languages for a new show. I don't think I can talk about yet. I've already created a language for another new show that I don't think I can talk about yet. <laughs> and I've got a movie coming out next year that I can't talk about. But uh, something that I can talk about is uh, if, uh, if you've heard of the Klingon language, for example, it was created by Mark Okrand, and then the Natvi language for Avatar was created by Paul Fromer. And perhaps you've heard of David Sallow, who worked on the Lord of the Rings trilogy and created a language for the New Hobbit trilogy. All of us together are going to be executive producers on a new documentary called uh, Conlanging, the Art of Crafting Tongues, that is going to basically show the world what conlanging is all about, Um, tell the stories of language creators that haven't been told before, and uh, and really just kind of put on a showcase of of what we do and why. So uh, we're filming right now, and hopefully we will uh, be able to release it sometime next year. Wow, that's very exciting. What a great lineup of, of people being involved in that. Yeah, and, um, and I, I have to say, by the way, I've met, you know, now that I've met everybody and spent some time with them, it's, they're such fun people and such kind-hearted and wonderful people. Um, like, man, I'll never forget just how jovial and, and happy Mark Okren was when I met him. What a great guy. I, I can only imagine the conversations that would happen in that room. <laughs> yeah, it's a different thing when you're behind, uh, you know, on the other side of the looking glass of language, yeah. I guess. <laughs> and do you find that um, people whose first languages are different create different types of language, or um, does that not influence it so much? It does to a certain extent, um, it, but it's actually very hard to demonstrate how. Uh, I think this is actually something that would be a really fruitful investigation for for a linguist because um, you know a lot of the simple things when it comes to you know like different types of tenses or different types of like suffixes and prefixes things like that different types of nominal systems different types of numbers uh, it doesn't matter what your language is everybody figures out oh yeah we can do those things differently and they do um, the parts where you start to see influence of the first language come in really really detailed locations like, for example, that you'll automatically perhaps mirror some of the island constraints that you have in English just because that's the way you speak it. An island constraint would be something like where, um, God, now I can't, I'm trying to think back to syntax. It's like, um, uh, I, who, who are you doing what to now you can actually say that. okay i can't think of it <laughs> but essentially there are these really like complex syntactic details that are parts of say the english language but not necessarily a part of all languages that are just so ingrained and where you don't even think of it that you'll unconsciously uh, duplicate them and so those are the areas that where you see influence but they're really hard to detect 
Well, there's definitely a PhD thesis waiting for somebody there. I think so. We've been talking with David Peterson. You can find his book, The Art of Language Invention, in stores right now. David, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks again for having me. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, PW senior writer Andrew Albanese previews the Frankfurt Book Fair. Stay tuned. I'm Buzz Bissinger, the author of Friday Night Lights, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Every week we get insider info from Publishers Weekly editors and contributors, and today PW senior writer Andrew Albanese is on the line to get us ready for the Frankfurt Book Fair. Hello, Andrew. Hello, Mark. Hello, Rose. Hi there. It's great to have you on the show, always, always. So um, tell, Frankfurt is suddenly right around the corner. Yeah, how did that happen? I, I don't know. It's the end of September, and it just it went right by us. So tell us a little bit about what you're doing to get ready for Frankfurt. Well, we are very busy here, obviously, getting ready for Frankfurt, because uh, we do show dailies at Frankfurt. And I'll take this opportunity right at the top of the interview to say that our show daily coverage, live from Frankfurt Book Fair, will be available for free on the PW website every day. So even if you're not with us in Germany, you can follow the goings on there. Um, so what have we been doing to get ready for Frankfurt? Well, this year is kind of a momentous year for the book fair. Uh, it is undergoing probably its most major change, uh, definitely in the last 15 to 20 years, but possibly ever. They are getting rid of Hall 8, which is the traditional home of the English language publishers, the, the UK and the American publishers, and they are moving us into the middle of the action in Hall 6. Now, those of uh, our listeners who've been to Frankfurt know that uh, the book fair fairgrounds are almost like their own little city unto themselves. It's this complex of buildings. Uh, it can take you 25 minutes to walk from one end of the, the, the show to the other. Um, well, we're now all going to be together in one nice, confined little spot. Uh, the Frankfurt Organization say this is because the dynamics have changed. It used to be that the English language publishers were uh, more rights sellers, and now that it's uh, the publishing market has become more international, and the goal here is to uh, not have a meeting be any more than a five-minute walk away. So the, the, the immediate result that we should see in Frankfurt is a, a busier, more compact fair, uh, but the, the Hall 8 home for the English language publishers for the last few years is now gone. Wow. So this is, in its own way, as big a change as BEA letting in breeders. Like it's just a whole different approach to the idea of the fair and what it's there for. Absolutely. And I think we're seeing a lot of that in book fairs everywhere, including BEA. Uh, next year, it's worth pointing out here already that uh, BEA is going to be in Chicago. Um, and it'll be interesting to see how BEA handles its new public uh, book con while it's in Chicago after a very successful year in New York last year. But you know, back to Frankfurt, uh, just like London, London moved to its new home at Olympia this year. Mm. Uh, Frankfurt is reorganizing its house. And everybody says the same thing when they, when they talk about these new changes that they're making. Um, it's because of changes in the industry. Uh, they're looking to uh, facilitate new conversations, to bring new players together in new ways. Uh, just like the book publishing industry is, is uh, being changed by digital, book fairs are being changed by digital as well. So this is a time uh, you just mentioned, like a lot of rights are being signed. I and mean, this is when a lot of publishers are going with their big, big books. Tell us what the environment is like around there. Yeah, it's it's. 
it's nuts. It really is. People who go to the Frankfurt Book Fair can tell you uh, that the right selling, right selling is still the lifeblood of the Frankfurt Book Fair. Mm-hmm. And the last few years, even as the fair has dipped in overall general attendance, uh, and part of that has to do with the economy globally uh, not being terribly strong, um, the right selling component of the fair has been posting record numbers. We are seeing more tables in the mm-hmm. agent center. Uh, we are seeing more agents displaying there from more territories, and it is just wall-to-wall meetings. Now, what we're not seeing over the last few years is the the blockbuster deals that you used to see unveiled at the Frankfurt Book Fair. Mm. Um, and that's for a couple reasons. Part of the reason is, is that those deals, you know, they used to they used to have to wait for those face to face meetings. Uh, you know, when you could get all the editors together and right. you know put together a deal like that. And now you can do it online. Now you could, there's so many ways to communicate that you know you don't have to wait for that one time a year uh, opportunity to meet with all your your stakeholders. Um, but the other thing is that. The, Frankfurt is seeing more volume in rights, and that's because they've brought in gamers and uh, the film industry and music. They've brought together – Frankfurt has really reached out to make the fair more of a rights fair than just a book fair. And what we're talking about is stories and storytelling, and you're you're really seeing a a concerted effort by the fair to bring in all kinds of media, and the net result of that has been uh, a lot of new business and a lot of uh, new stakeholders attending the fair. I don't know about in uh, other parts of publishing, but certainly in the science fiction fantasy world, I've seen tremendous crossover because so many books and movies and games are all based on science fiction fantasy concepts. You see major writers who've made their names uh, putting books together now writing tie-in novels or um, you know writing for comics, uh, lots and lots of crossover there, or writing for games, writing tie-in novels for games and uh, writing the games themselves. So it sounds like it makes a lot of sense to have the same agents kind of handling a lot of those deals, though it does mean the agents need to learn about new industries. That's exactly right. And you, the science fiction genre is a great example. It's probably the most popular genre that's represented uh, at the Frankfurt Book Fair, especially on the public day on Saturday, where the cosplay that goes on there is not to be not to be believed. There's cosplay yeah. at a book fair? Oh my goodness, it's fantastic. It's, you know, in I fact, had this no year, idea. I I'm just going to take a bunch of pictures on Saturday. Yeah, oh, definitely. Yeah. <laughs> Um, but it is really you, – you, you're right, Rose. Absolutely. You're seeing so many – and it's not just uh, – you know, it's about licensing and leveraging every aspect of the brand. You know, it can go from uh, video games to TV commercials to uh, images for cell phones. I mean it is really it, – it's, it's incredible how – deeply licensing is now a part of the book publishing environment and how well the Frankfurt has really pivoted its fair to address the the whole range of possibilities for the stories that publishers trade on. So do you feel with, with a lot of the, uh, the, the, the agenting, I mean, is it mostly a a fiction or, you know, including uh, genre fiction, or is there a good smattering of nonfiction as well? There's both. Uh, every year there seems to be, it, you know, the big titles are always fiction titles. That's yeah. Fiction definitely rules for sure. Um, but every year you see uh, there's always a big nonfiction fair of the book. There's always a big fiction fair. But I think one of the most interesting things that we're hearing more about, and I wonder if at some point we'll see a big press release about this, is that, uh, you know, characters and series are mm. being licensed now at the fair. Mm. So 
so right now it's all about new books and new titles. That's still sort of the headlines that we're used to having from Frankfurt. But at some point, you're going to see a big press release from somebody announcing that they've just done this huge licensing deal for a character in a book with some other media entirely. Wow. So that's so interesting because to me that is monetizing fan fiction. That's a big part of what's going on at the fair, especially on the last day, on the public day. There's a uh, self-publishing panel and there's also there's a going to be a big panel that's going to deal with fan fiction and publishers have been so resistant to fan fiction in the past yeah um they've been very scared of it they almost seems like it's an infringement on their copyright but you know amazon for example has you know begun to trade in fan fiction uh the internet it's a very popular phenomenon on the internet and the publishers have actually gleaned a number of bestsellers out of fan fiction Mm. Fifty Shades of Grey, anyone, for example. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so the phenomenon of fan fiction is something that's really become very popular at the fair. And the first discussions about it, probably five years ago that I recall, six years ago, were fear. <laughs> and now it's become, well, let's how do we capitalize on this? I mean, I know that authors have, have worried for a long time. I, I've heard some authors say they refuse to read fan fiction written about their own works because then if they put something from it in a published book, they might be accused of infringing on the fan fiction. So um, there are definitely concerns there and concerns about copyright. But um, I think also publishers are really coming around to the idea that anything that engages fans is a good thing. Absolutely. And I think you're right. There there are a lot of copyright concerns around it, and it's very thorny. And also, you know, publishers and authors don't like to sue their biggest fans. And these are the people who are writing this fan fiction. Uh, it doesn't do much for your brand when you're, you're, you're litigating against the very people who love you the most. Right. So do we have an idea of what to, uh, what to expect, what the big uh, titles or characters might be? Well, this week uh, in, in Publishers Weekly, we have a run, our Frankfurt Briefcase, which is uh, done by Claire Swanson and Rachel Deal. And they sort of run down some of the big titles and books that are going to be um, on display and for sale at the Frankfurt Book Fair. Uh, in our Frankfurt Show Dailies, which you can check out, we will run down new deals as they happen. And also, we will highlight a number of translated books and things that will be coming to market there. So you can certainly check those out online next week or two weeks when the fair begins. And um, yeah, I I think you're going to see a pretty high volume. I can tell you one thing that I am expecting this year, and it's panic. On the first day (laughs) of the fair, when people don't go to their usual stand at Hall 8 and need to find their new stand (laughs) at Hall 6, and it's more compact and there's people in the halls everywhere. We saw this in London last year when it moved to Olympia. The first day is going to be an absolute madhouse and people are going to be lost by the second day it's going to smooth out and i think people will find it's going to work out just fine so what i'm hearing is people should go a day early to to walk the halls and make a mental map get a get a sense I, you, of it it's you know if, if i'm not even sure that the hall is going to be open a day early but mm-hmm. i would definitely go as early as you can on that day right. and i would pad in an extra 15 minutes to get to your appointments they're going to be closer i don't think you're going to have to walk as far as you used to when the english hall was at hall eight but you're still not going to know where you're going <laughs> so build in a little extra time wise yes and uh, tell us a little bit more about um, this day for the public which i didn't realize that frankfurt had now This is one of the greatest phenomenon in publishing you'll ever see, and that's uh, the Frankfurt Book Fair Public Day because they bring in 
a hundred thousand people. I'm going to say possibly. Wow. I, I would say. Wow. I mean, it's like an absolutely massive number of attendees. I think total attendance for the fair over the full range of it is usually around 120, and a, a, the vast number of those come in on the final day for the wow. fair. The fairground is packed. These are fans, young kids dressed up in costumes, attending author signings, uh, doing you know meet, meeting people. I mean, it is just like the most incredible collection of fans you will see anywhere and it's all done around books and we're starting to see you know we've seen that with comic-con in the right. u.s and we're starting to see that with BookCon, which was very successful last year uh it, it, the the public day for the bea and uh, you know it all stems from i mean you look at what frankfurt's done with this for the years and you just it does your heart good to see the public so enthused and so inter interacting with their favorite books and authors Wow, that sounds incredible. So it's like a one-day Comic-Con. Pretty much, yep. And uh, people have come from all over Europe for it, uh, definitely all over Germany. Um, it's, it's really a sight to behold. So uh, you mentioned that um, in the past English language publishers have been kind of segregated. Um, was it also just because uh, they were, it felt like they were less relevant in this uh, pan-European market, or it was just that there were different kinds of deals going on? I think they've always been sort of at the heart of the of, of the Frankfurt Book Fair. Um, translation, I think, what's really changed now is just there's so much more of uh, international commerce with with digital, with the internet, with easier communications, with the ability. Um, there's just more volume, more deals, more interest in international fiction. Uh, you know. Amazon right now is publishing more translated fiction than anybody, but we're seeing a number of houses uh, start to really um, dabble in international deals. Last year, one of the biggest books of the fair was uh, a book from Spain, a, a, a Spanish poet that signed up a deal with FSG. So, um, I, I, you know, it used to be in the past that uh, the, the foreign publishers would all want the big English language, the, the big American blockbuster translated for their countries. Now you're seeing a little bit more of a two-way street. So, uh, we're all going to be a little closer together, and hopefully that will facilitate more deals. Is that mostly in fiction, or is it happening in nonfiction, too? Mostly in fiction. I mean, you are seeing some nonfiction, but, you know, a, a Serbian history is not, you know, of great interest yet in the U.S., um, though there certainly is a market for it. I would guess that you, you, if you publish it, some people will buy it. Um, but, you know, some of the smaller, more local histories that are popular at the fair, the more local nonfiction authors here aren't known in the U.S. So it is more for fiction, for sure. Oh, I, I was thinking more uh, like cookbooks, for example, or craft and hobby books. Like uh, I occasionally dabble in origami and all of the best books are written in Japanese. And mm. I'm, I'm very fortunate that origami diagrams are pretty much uh, there's a, a universal established code for this. So I don't have to read Japanese, um, but I've gone into Japanese bookstores to find the best ones and sometimes wished for translations. Oh, Rose, you would love Hall 4. There's a hall, an entire <laughs> hall like dedicated to these books. Uh, there's a, wow. a, there's a gourmet uh, cookbook center that Frankfurt is really beefing up this year. It should mm. be fantastic. But, you know, here's my, my feeling about foreign cookbooks is, is that most U.S. cookbook authors and chefs tend to rip off foreign chefs' recipes uh. rather than, you know, you know, publish their recipe collections over here. So maybe that will change in, in coming years. But 
Well, thank you so much, Andrew. It's always great to have you on the show. We're going to let you get back to packing your suitcase uh, and uh, making your appointments. I'm sure you have a raft of them. I do indeed. I'm looking forward to doing quite a bit of coverage this year. I'll also be podcasting from the fair this year as well, which you can also find on the Publishers Weekly website uh, on Thursday. I believe it's the 13th of October. So you can listen to our uh, podcast from the show floor at Frankfurt. Wonderful. Thank you so much. My pleasure. And now a final word from our sponsors. I'm Naomi Novik, author of Uprooted, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. And that's it for today's show. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and you've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. Join us next week for another terrific author interview. We'll also have lots more juicy insider info on best-selling books and the nuts and bolts of book publishing. In the meantime, you can listen to this and every episode of Publishers Weekly Radio absolutely free at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio. Subscribe to our podcasts on iHeartRadio and iTunes and hear every new episode streamed live on audiobookradio.net. Check those sites every week for a brand new episode giving you the inside story on your favorite story. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio Show. 